This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. All right, I love it when there's synchronicity on the clock. The time is 10.10. Thank you very much to our news teams. Let's get into serious business of the day. It is the stories behind the the headlines. We're joined by Dr. Mechi Mahoba, a political analyst, uh, who's going to be reviewing some of the stories for us in the news. Good morning, Dr. Mahoba. Good morning, and thank you for your time. Okay, so there's quite a bit to get through, so I hope we can do it. We can do as many of these uh, headlines as possible. Let's start off with uh, events unfolding in the United States as the U.S. Congress or the Parliament of the United States government receives a bill to review South Africa's relations following what they call a politically motivated case at the ICJ. There's a lot going on here. So we know that South Africa brought a case before the International Court of Justice. Uh, And after submissions from the State of Israel and the Republic of South Africa, 15 out of 17 judges believe that South Africa presented a case that shows valid grounds or prima facie evidence that Israel's retaliation against Hamas is an act of genocide. It's not a foregone conclusion, but on the surface, with the available facts, it looks as though it can be categorized as genocide and not necessarily self-defense. And effectively what South Africa has done is put uh, is present a mirror to the international world to really question what international law entails, what morality entails, how we value human life uh, and how we degrade human life and how we expediently use issues of self-defense to either denigrate a people or another. So there's a lot that's come into this case. Your views? Definitely. I think what South Africa has done with this case was to displace the U.S. and the U.K. and some parts of Europe as the champions of human rights. Mm. So America and the U.K. are the two countries that are forever wanting to be on the face of good human rights. And what South Africa has done here, it was actually showing that these superpowers, maybe they sometimes engage in imperialist tendencies. And with this issue that is going now, you can see that American imperialism is still alive. So now the, the U.S. actions also have implications. If they trust in the work of the, uh, the, the court, they shouldn't be even questioning South Africa's decision because if they believe that that body and its laws are valid and ethical, Mm -hmm. then it shows that whatever judgment that was delivered, it should be accepted. But what the U.S. is now doing Mm -hmm. is also questioning the, the, the legitimacy of international criminal court. Yeah. Okay. So that's what you're saying. It's tantamount to. So the bill, it's a bipartisan bill, interestingly. So it's got one Republican sponsor, one Democratic Party sponsor. Their names are John James, and uh, who's a Republican congressman, and Jared Moscovich, who's a Democratic Party congressman. And broadly speaking, they're not even looking at just the ICJ case at The Hague recently. They're even saying that South Africa's stance on Ukraine and Russia and other areas of international affairs 
threatens to malign U.S. foreign policy. So I think they're accusing South Africa of taking foreign policy positions that undermine U.S. foreign policy positions. But is South Africa not a sovereign state in world affairs? Does South Africa not have a sovereign right to choose its friendships and relationships without having to consider where America features in the spectrum? They have the right, but the U.S. is right as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. is is engaged in a, a program of delegitimizing Russia and China. And anybody who looks to be cozy with those two countries is de- uh, described, as, described as an enemy. And what South Africa has refused to do, and they've been consistent with this, mm-hmm. they've refused to allow the U.S. to tell them what to do. And I think this is what we've seen under Naledi Pando's leadership, something that has been encouraging that South Africa now has a stance, but because we have a long-standing relationship with the U.S., that sort of stance should basically have political consequences, and I think that's where the U.S. is getting to that. If we are not going to have a harmonized position on global and geopolitical issues, maybe we need to review okay. our friendship, and I think that's where it's headed to that. The U.S., as a, as a, as a bully boy political uh, mm. power, they want to dominate the world. And what South Africa okay. has done, it has refused to be co-opted into that uh, colonial power right. matrix that the U.S. has been pushing. Okay. And, and then this basically, as I've said, should have consequences because the U.S. It knows itself to be a superpower, whether in Europe or in Africa. And what mm-hmm. South Africa has done has, to, has been to take a strong position okay. and they've stuck straight out. Okay, so what you're saying is the U.S. is just playing the simple game of real politic. My enemy's enemy is my friend. My enemy's friend is my enemy. And if South Africa, even with its sovereign rights enshrined in U.N. charters, if South Africa is going to have cozy relations with Russia, America can simply look at it as a maligned position. The same as if South Africa is going to be defending the human rights of Palestinian people, which incorrectly then is equated as the rights of Hamas, then America can say, well, then this is how we view it. It doesn't matter how simplistic the argumentation, real politic is the name of the game, is what you're telling me. Definitely. And the issue is that South Africa has depends on the U.S. for investment and other sort of partnerships. And I think that's where you see the politics of gift culture playing themselves, that the U.S. feels like we have given you ABC and now it's your time to side with us. And they are feeling that they are not getting that sort of response from mm-hmm. the, from South Africa. And that's why they, they even show a shameless sense of entitlement that we have partnerships with South Africa. We are helping them. But now they've taken a position that has made our relationship unattainable. And I think that's where the conversation is going. And I think this should also be a lesson for South African, African countries that they must tribal all means to be independent. This issue of depending on grants and aid will lead to these consequences where people give you a grant or, a, or an aid for something not knowing that actually behind that grant is a motive. And I think that's what's happening with the U.S., that they see themselves as the brother of South Africa. And now mm. the, the younger brother is not behaving according to the, the rules of gift economics, which I give you something, you do something for me. And South Africa has now, under the leadership of Naledi Pando, yeah. refused to be drawn into that spirit. You know, there's so many things that you're saying here, which is also South Africa needing to be expedient, uh, because there's an uh, 
there's an interrelationship uh, between foreign direct investment, uh, FDI, portfolio flows, trade, and peace and security in the world. And South Africa's largest trading partners are actually Germany, the United States, China, Japan, the UK and Spain. I'm not sure if it's exactly in that order. And certainly if you're going to put juxtapose America to Russia, we know that there's more American dollars in South Africa than there are Russian rubles. That's a fact. So it is a huge gamble. But but when I read to you sort of this diverse list of trading partners from China to Germany to Japan to UK to Spain um, to America's 400 billion rands versus Russia's 100 million rands, um, it says that South Africa's got an eclectic mix of friends and it's South Africa's sovereign right to do that, is it not? Yeah, it's their problem actually because the relationship with Russia dates back to the days of the liberation movement it's more cultural than economic, mm-hmm. whereas the, uh, the relationship with America has had economic benefits. But remember that America is all using this bilateral relations to advance American imperialism. And mm-hmm. I think that's what they've seen. But it's becoming tricky if they are going to challenge America without having alternatives, because if they're going to stick with Russia throughout, mm-hmm. then it means that if America pulls out on all partnerships, right. South Africa is going to experience economic travels. And actually, that's okay. the interconnectedness of global politics, that okay. America might be a bully boy, but they have been good to South Africa to a certain extent. Right. And what South Africa needs to do is to accept its political independence by any all means necessary. But considering that how do they know how to cut losses and who are their mm-hmm. real friends? And mm-hmm. I think that can help the country. But so far, we've been dependent on European and Asian countries, mm-hmm. and it's not going, going well for the South African, um, for the African continent right. and South Africa in particular. Okay, so South Africa also has to be expedient and circumspect in its choices. You said consequences. So this bill currently is in Congress. Um, if enacted... It will take about 30 days for those consequences to be clearly spelled out. So where are we likely to see consequences if, and that's the if, it's enacted, if it wins approval, support, and actually becomes some kind of a law? What will those consequences be? Will it be a GOA, which we're expecting to be renewed next year? Will it be in any form of aid, grants, defense packages, PEPFAR, aid, you know, support for healthcare, scholarships? What are we likely to see? I think we're going to see it in all aspects, but AGOA is the most important one because the U.S. has been using AGOA as a form of a tool to impose sanctions on countries that if you are not on our side, then we remove you from all the partnerships. And I think the relationship between South Africa and the U.S. is so entrenched. So if the U.S. was to take any decision to cut all the ties with South Africa, South Africa is going to be in serious trouble. Mm. But equally, this is something that they have to live with it because what I sense now is that the the dependency on the U.S. and Europe has mm. has reached the, the level of structural in Asia where if you're going to take any decision, it is going to cause pain and harm. And I think if South Africa needs to, uh, to take that decision, it has to be something that is uh, looked at 
seriously and politically so that they've weigh all the weaknesses and the strengths. It's not something that it should come as a surprise because they know basically that the U.S. is one of the biggest investors in South Africa. And if they want to severe ties with the U.S., it shouldn't be because they've taken uh, Israel to international yeah. criminal court. It's something yeah. that they have to plan. And I think for South African African uh, countries, that sort of relation, I mean, that sort of decision is quite necessary if we are to have any independent political voice without having to offend the U.S. or mm-hmm. America. Okay, so let's stay on this tack, moving on. Uh, and a report that suggested that um, uh, Foreign Minister Naledi Pandel, South Africa's Minister of uh, International Relations and Cooperation, uh, has said that she will not be available to hold public office at the end of this term in May. So we're needing some clarification because Durko says she's actually not said that. She merely said on the 31st of January at a press conference she is not aware of what the plans of the seventh administration will be. So can we just get some clarity what might be going on here? We'll ask her herself as well when we speak to her. But the issue is that she's one of the most senior ranking members of cabinet. She's one of the most prominent. She's also one of the most experienced. She's been a minister of higher education, basic education, science and technology, uh, home affairs, currently international relations. She's been a chairperson of the National Council of Provinces. She's been a deputy chief whip in parliament. She's got a lot of institutional memory and government experience. At a time when we're talking about capacity problems in government, um, she's a steady pair of hands. Do you think if the ANC won the next election and President Ramaphosa was to establish another administration, could he afford not to have Naledi Pandon in that government? I don't, I don't think they'll let her go. And I think she has been a stellar leader because Nala Dipando, since been in government, she has never been accused of corruption. So here we're talking about somebody who's ethical. And with this portfolio, current portfolio now, she has been a very strong voice of reason. And the institutional memory that you're talking about is quite strong. And Nala Dipando is one of the most educated leaders of the ANC and somebody who is well-articulated, somebody who is also intelligent. And I do not think that Ramaphosa would want to actually let her go. But there's also an issue of age here. Mm -hmm. She might feel that she has done it and now she needs to pass the baton to someone. And if that Mm -hmm. is the reason, I don't think the ANC will be in any position to to keep her. Mm -hmm. And this shows that... The ANC should also be thinking about succession plan because yeah. the, somebody of Naledi uh, Pando's caliber mm. should have been somebody who has been actually used by the ANC to mentor young leaders within yeah. the organization. And I don't think that's something that the ANC is keen about. And I think in terms of uh, making, uh, uh, ensuring organizational continuity and uh, succession plans, yeah. the organization is quite in serious trouble. Yeah. Okay. And so to this point as well, age aside, she is 70. There's also the issue of the National Elective Conference and who made it back into the NEC and who didn't. So a lot of the the older leaders were not voted back into the NEC. Does that matter when the when the president, if he's reelected, assembles a new cabinet? Will that have any bearing? Definitely. I think for 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 any strongest portfolios in government by the ANC, they firstly look at the the NEC list. If the person hasn't made it to that list, it's quite difficult that a president can uh, appoint 
mm. a minister who's not an NEC member to, to any senior portfolio in government. Right. And I think those are the serious consequences. If you are not active in the ANC, no matter how good you are, the chances of you holding a portfolio in, in government yeah. are quite limited. Okay. All right. But that's also whether we believe the ANC would win an election. And we've just seen the secret poll. <laughs> the confidential poll at City Press that says that at best they'll get about 39 to 40%. Do you think that's true? Yeah, it's not true. It's very far-fetched. Okay. Uh, I think uh, voting patterns take over almost 50 years to change. Mm. So there's been a talk that the ANC is going to go below 50. I don't think that's possible because we still have a generation in this country yeah. that associate voting with voting for the ANC. Yeah. And until such such time that those people are out, out of the system, mm. the ANC will still be in power. Mm. If they, this 50-year period passes, then we can be talking about the ANC right. uh, getting about 80, 89%. But at the moment, I see them going to 50. At, at worst, it's going to be 48, 49. But mm. I don't see the ANC degenerating to that okay. level because... They still have strong support. Ramaphosa has kind of revived the ANC from Zuma's hands uh, to their level, okay. of course. And I, I, do, I do not think that there's also any strong alternative that challenges the ANC. The EFF is trying, but I don't think there's mm. ever been a situation where, despite all the corruption, the maladministration, yeah. I've not seen a challenge where can go right. up to 30, um, 39%. And an important thing you've said, and and, and uh, election registration figures showed us, I think I referred to Stimbele Mbete's tweet the other day, that said that the older generation of voters, people between the ages of 55 and 70, 86% of that electorate are registered to vote. And they show up to vote. So if people want a seismic change, we have to see higher youth voter registration numbers. And without that generational shift... We can't be talking about this earthquake um, because the sentimental voters are still going to show up and vote. But let's talk about uh, Julius Malema and what was termed the battle for KwaZulu-Natal and the manifesto launch. I thought it was an interesting conversation with um, Mzwaniele Mani and Tabiso Dema this morning. Just some of the issues that were being outlined, how they actually look at the land question. I thought that was interesting is that, you know, sometimes you just need tenure and leasing, not necessarily title deeds, to make the land productive for commercial purposes. That's their approach to land reform. Incentivizing welfare, more education, more social support until you can be on your feet. Um, uh, and issues around access to healthcare and free education and dealing with the ESCOM crisis. What did you make of the manifesto launch? I think the manifesto is a strong uh, left-wing uh, political piece, and they've kind of outlined South Africa's problem quite correctly, especially when you talk about the issue of land. Uh, the issue of land has been so important to the EFF, considering that if you check the ANC, they have actually done land redistribution without any plan. Somebody would ask land to be distributed to them. You give them a farm. Five years later, the farm is now not functioning and people would have lost their jobs. I think the manifesto, considering how the EFF is positioned itself, it's quite, it's quite correct to their level of left-wing politics. And they've also touched on serious issues such as healthcare. Healthcare in South Africa is one of the sectors that show, that show inequality. You go to a public hospital, the machines are not functioning or the, the facilities themselves are, have reached the level of decay. 
even the education system in, in the public sector is quite worse. Well. So the manifesto touches all the problems that the ANC has struggled to, face, uh, to, to resolve. Mm-hmm. But the issue is that that is not a, a sort of a political stance that you can implement overnight. Mm-hmm. South Africa is still much a racial capitalist society. Yeah. So if the EFF was to be given a chance, it's not going to take them five years to mm. implement whatever they are thinking. It's going to take time okay. because it will, uh, allow, it will need to require them to actually think about how do we change the logic of capitalism that has been creating inequality and unemployment in South mm. Africa. Okay, listen, we've run out of time, but I do want to ask you this. Can you just tell us what's going on in Pakistan? I find it such an interesting country because Pakistan is truly very, very complex. Um, uh, you have, uh, you know, strong culture, strong political elite, but strong traditions, but constantly governments fall because of things like corruption. Then there are political assassinations, there are arrests, there's a recycling of leaders. You've got a former cricket champion who was a prime minister, but he finds himself in prison. But even from there, he has a strong support base. And in the recent parliamentary elections, uh, his party seems to have made significant inroads and might be winning this contest. But what does it mean for Pakistan? I think the elections have actually showed that Pakistan is now internalizing democracy beyond all the religious, cultural differences because if they can prioritize somebody who they think has been sidelined by those in power Mm. and they still believe that this is our candidate, that shows that democracy is still much functioning quite well. And I think the, 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 the turnout shows that uh, there is no sort of any political party that has stronghold on parliament. It's mm-hmm. something that they have to negotiate to form a government. And I think for, for, for from a democratic point of view, that's quite good for Pakistan. But the, the issue of power negotiations and power sharing that South Africa might find itself soon rather than later it doesn't really work out in many countries. It shows mm-hmm. that democracy, will, on the other hand, will also bring stability in which people with all different cultural, religious background will have to share political power, and it's not quite mm-hmm. easy to implement. It's been a really fascinating conversation, quite illuminating and enlightening. Dr. Meji Mahoba, thank you for your time. It's news time. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.